0: Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and the kingdom of love that you have created. And we, we see how love is uh, struggling, um, being attacked in this world right now, and we ask that you will enlighten us and lead us in how to be agents for your kingdom and take the truth about your character to this world. Give us wisdom as we're studying today, Lord, that we can come into greater insights into not just your character, but how we can live your principles in a world that seems to be blowing up around us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we are doing lesson three in our quarterly Making Friends for God and the title is Seeing People Through the Eyes of Jesus. Think that through. When you think of seeing people through the eyes of Jesus, what do you think? Design. Design. I'll say, does it depend on who we understand Jesus to be? Would that impact how we see people through the eyes of Jesus? Can people have a different view of who Jesus is? and depending on their view of Jesus does that affect how then they see people through the eyes of Jesus if we believe that seeing people through the eyes of Jesus do we believe it's different than seeing people through the Father's eyes or do we, do we, do we see them differently when you consider yourself standing before the Father and being examined I'm standing before God His heavenly throne He's examining me what do you experience? Do you experience peace and joy and happiness and, and, and confidence, or do you get some sense of apprehension, fear, uh, anxiety, guilt, or shame? When you consider standing before God and being examined, do you experience confidence because you're also thinking, well, I have Jesus standing there between me and the Father to shield the Father from actually seeing me, and he only sees me through the lens of his Son. Is that Now you have peace. Is that how you think of it? This week on Christian Radio, I actually heard a pastor telling his audience that we can have confidence before God when we sin because we have Jesus as our advocate, which he said is our defense attorney, standing next to God in heaven, arguing our case based on his merits to pay our penalty. So be confident. What kind of God is he describing? What would that God do if Jesus wasn't there to argue him out of it? Do you think the father would be ha, have an angry response if he saw a sinner without Jesus beside him to remind him of the blood payment he's made for the sinner? Do you think he'd be angry? Oh, where's my blood payment? Oh, no blood payment. I'm going to get you. Do you think that's how the father is? Or do you, when you think of the Father, think things like this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his Son but gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things? If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. Father. So when you get these ideas, do you bring all of this biblical evidence to bear to realize that everything that's true about Jesus is true about the Father? When we look at people through Jesus' eyes, are we certain we're using the right law lens? Does Jesus look at people through... Human law. Or does Jesus look at people through God's law? And what kind of law is God's law? Design law. So, when Adam sinned and ran and hid because he was afraid, how did God approach him? Adam, where are you? Well, I ran and hid because I was naked. I was afraid because I was naked. Adam, who told you you were naked? Now, what are the options? I got that on CNN. No, there are no options here other than Adam and God. They're the two people there. And so the implication is, Adam, you're not getting that from me. I'm not pointing out defects. I'm not being critical. I'm not being judgmental. Adam, that's your own conscience. That's coming from you. You feel bad inside. And you feel unworthy. And you feel ashamed. And you feel guilty. That's not coming from me. That's what sin has done to you. You're damaged now, Adam. You're injured. God saw Adam. How did God see him? As sick, as injured, as damaged in heart, mind, and soul, in need of healing and restoration. He did not see him as a criminal who deserved to be executed by God. And, and he was about to execute, and he said, Jesus jumped in and said, no, no, kill me instead. That is a lie. That's not what happened. I'm going to read to you the opening story from my book, The God Shaped Heart. This is a retelling of the woman caught in adultery, drug before Jesus. And as you hear this, think about how did Jesus see this woman? How did this woman see herself? Do you see yourself? Have you ever felt like this woman in the aftermath of some shortcoming in in your life? She was terrified. Dust caked her mouth, and tears, uh, and the tears that made trails through the dirt on her face couldn't, keep the, couldn't flow fast enough to keep the painful grit out of her eyes. Her knees bled from being dragged through the rough streets as she desperately clung to the torn sheet barely covering her body. She frantically looked for escape, but in every direction there was only the impenetrable wall of hate she could feel their malice building, their hunger for her blood, the dam holding back, their pent-up savagery about to break upon her. She knew she deserved to die. She was taught from childhood that what she had been caught doing was punishable by death, and she loathed who she had become. She remembered how her uncle had taken her innocence and, and when, she was, when she was only a child and then had told her how wicked and filthy she was. He called her vile names, and those insults replayed in her mind in a nonstop cacophony of self loathing. Some part of her longed for escape. Perhaps death would finally free her from the years of guilt, shame, insecurity, fear of rejection, and chronic loneliness. Yes, loneliness. Though she had been with more men than anyone she knew, she always felt alone, unloved, worthless. Life was hard. Perhaps it was better this way. Perhaps this was God's will for someone like her, someone who wasn't pure. Perhaps death was all she deserved. Let it come. Why fight it? She sank down in the dirt, waiting for the stones to find her. But the stones never came. One moment, the vulgar taunts of the murderous mob were all she could hear, and the next, silence. Daring to open her eyes, she saw a pair of sandaled feet. Fearfully looking up, she thought she must be dreaming as she saw the kindest face she had ever seen, and he smiled at her. How could he smile? But he was smiling, and in the smile she saw peace, compassion, and real concern for her. And then she noticed his eyes. They were intense, and she knew instantly that he saw her. Not the nearly naked body the mob looked upon, nor the frightened girl groveling in guilt and shame. No, he saw her. He saw the little girl, the bruised, battered, betrayed, exploited, misunderstood, and vilified little girl, hiding behind years of bad choices, broken promises, and self-hatred. He saw the little girl inside longing to be loved, desperate to be whole. He saw her. She held her breath as he asked her where her accusers were. But a voice barely above a whisper, with a voice barely above a whisper, not wanting to shatter this fragile moment, she told him they they had gone. And then the unbelievable happened. Her world shook. Her distorted self-image shattered. Her understanding of reality changed. His voice was so compassionate, so tender, like the gentlest music, and she heard him say, Neither do I condemn you. How? How could he not? He knew what she was and what she had done. She knew what the law said, what the teacher said, what the priest said. Everyone agreed she deserved to be condemned. But not this man. He said, no, I don't condemn you. I love you and want you to be whole. Go now and live a better life. Live in harmony with God's design for life and relationships. The years have pent up shame burst the tears began to spill down her cheeks not the terrified tears of guilt and fear she had shed just moments before but tears of joy and relief tears of love and thanksgiving she was loved despite any previous actions loved not for what she had done but loved for who she was a child of god there is power in love power to change people power to heal broken hearts, power to transform lives. God is love. And it is his plan to pour his love into our hearts to heal, transform, rebuild each of us back into his original design for humankind. But sadly, something obstructs that love. Something has prevented far too many good Christian people from experiencing that transformation. How does Jesus see people? How did Jesus see this girl? Do you think this reflects how Jesus saw her? How did she see herself? Was part of her healing to see herself how Jesus saw her? We have a visitor in class today, I think, yeah? This is for you. Will you take this to our visitor over there? Okay, hand that to her. You're welcome. Do we see past the sins of people through their bad choices, through the pain and the suffering to see them? Do we see what people can be if they would let Jesus heal them? Do we see through the eyes of Jesus or do we let past wounds? mistakes, past sins fill our own hearts with guilt and shame and destroy our peace? Do we see ourselves through the eyes of Jesus? What about if it's more than just a sin like adultery? What about if if the story is not about just a sin like adultery, it's actually criminal? How would Jesus see an actual criminal who did wrong and injured others? Do you think the two thieves on the cross were innocent of their crimes? Or had they committed them? They not only were sinners, they were criminals. How did Jesus treat them? Did he love them anyway? Was Jesus concerned for their salvation? Did he still see them as children injured, wounded by sin, but healable? if they would trust him. He could fix the brokenness in their heart. He could take away the fear and selfishness. He could restore them to righteousness. But they were criminals. Do we see criminals like that? Mm. What is the Christian approach to those who've not only sinned but committed crimes in our society? Are we to seek vengeance to inflict punishment, or are we to seek to redeem them, to bring them to Christ, to have them be reborn and turn from enemies of God into friends of God? What is the Christian approach? So we might restrain them using restraining power from committing more crimes in order to not only protect the innocent in our society, but to protect the criminal from further damage to their own character, from further searing their own conscience, from further hardening their own heart. We might do that in love, but that's a long way from seeking vengeance. What about the police officer that's been arrested for the murder of George Floyd? What is the Christian response to him? Should we seek vengeance upon him? Should we seek vengeance upon other police officers in our society who had no part in it? Should we seek to punish other citizens, organizations, and corporations who had no part in it? Should we seek this officer's salvation? Should we sh- love him like Jesus? Loves him. Do you think Jesus loves that officer and wants his salvation? Imagine you have a son who's in fifth grade whose teacher has been molesting him. Your son has tried to tell people, but no one believes him. Or if they believe him, they feel powerless that there's nothing they can do against the corporate institution of the school. So they keep sending him back to the same classroom. After years of feeling helpless and exploited, he eventually is filled with such anger that he grabs a baseball bat and goes into a rage at school, breaking windows, breaking car windows, computers, hitting other children and teachers, breaking bones. Some of his friends, some who've been abused themselves, some who haven't been abused but have heard about it and empathize with him, join him and they form a mob and they go through the community and they begin breaking into houses of other teachers and destroying property of people who were not involved. They even demand that the city disband all schools and get rid of all teachers. (laughs) Would you love your son who was doing this behavior? But if this was your son doing this, what action would you take in dealing with your son? What is your primary goal for your son who is the victim of abuse and sin, who has been wronged? What is your primary goal for him? Right what do you think is happening inside your son's heart and mind as he goes around abusing other people? Is he being healed? He's becoming, like the who hurt him. He's becoming like the person who hurt them. People are so blind in our society today. They the very things they hate. What do you think Jesus wants for your son in our analogy? Will your son get a good outcome for his soul, for his character, for his heart if the community gives him what he wants, disbands the schools, fires the teachers, and even buys him a new car, gives him a house and puts money in his account? Will your son have a good character outcome if the community does that? What will he likely do the next time something doesn't go his way in life? Love wants to heal the heart of your son, to protect him. But your son, get your mind around what I'm about to say, folks, needs protection from more than an abusive teacher. He needs protection from himself. From acting on the hurt in pain in such a way that damages his own soul. There's so many Christians in our society right now that because they operate on an imposed law concept, God's law works like human law, they are jumping on a bandwagon of what they perceive to be righteousness to help people who've been abused, and they are actually contributing to the destruction of their souls. It's evil. It's wrong. In love, as a parent, would you not take the baseball bat out of your child's hand Would you not stop him from attacking and injuring other people? And wouldn't you sit and hold him while he cries? Comfort him and help him get the healing he needs to restore him? And if we are really mature Christians, in our metaphor, our analogy, we would seek the salvation of the abusing teacher, the sexual exploiter. You think that that's not biblical? Think about King David, the sexual exploiter and murderer. Did God seek his salvation and restoration? This is not the way of the world. God's kingdom is not the kingdom of this world. So many Christians are being sucked in, and the trap of the devil is identify an unrighteous act or an unrighteous process that is clearly unrighteous and then use unrighteous methods to deal with it. The methods of imperialism, the methods of coercion, the methods of violence, the methods of force, the methods of spreading the very disease that hurt you. When we see problems through the lens of human law, then we see crimes that we must punish. And we think if we fail to punish, that then there is no justice. And this is the problem. This is the wine of Babylon. This is the whole world intoxicated on the lie from Rome that God's law works like human law. What about if we change the identity of Jesus? Some today are calling for the destruction of all images of Jesus in churches and cathedrals that portray him as white. I'm not exactly sure what they're actually calling for. Someone should ask them what they mean by that. Do they mean that they're trying to say Jesus is black? I'm confused because I was at a uh, program or watched a program uh, a year and a half or so ago here in this community in which a Christian evangelist got up and said Jesus was black and actually put a picture of a black Jesus on the screen. He didn't say, imagine Jesus was black. There is a place for people to imagine Jesus in a variety of ways to empathize, to feel a connection with. There's a place that that can be a helpful mental exercise in one's journey to connect with Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what he said. He actually said Jesus was black. Now, what is the problem? And I want you to show the evil. I want, you to, I want, you to, I want to show you the evil here. And it's evil. What's the problem when we focus on Jesus' skin color? It's racism. Well, it is racism, number one. It's absolutely racism. But what are we not focusing on anymore? his His character and his identity. We are no longer focusing on his identity as the Son of God and the Son of Man and his perfect character of righteousness. This is a corruption. It's a diversion. Yes? Are we also saying that Jesus can only help us if he matches our skin color? This is another lie. And this is one of the lies of the racists in our community today, that no one can help you unless they're either your gender, your race, your sexual preference or identity. If they don't have that part of their individuality identity, then they can't help you. Martin Luther King Jr. did not espouse this. He understood it was always about character. It's always about character. He wanted to have a dream for his little girls, that they would grow up in a country, they would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the quality of their character. Do you understand this thing that's happening is a cancer? It's a malignancy of evil that is corrupting minds, and so many Christians are being sucked into it. It's, and I'm, I'm here just to speak truth of God's kingdom. Think for yourself, folks. Look at the evidence. The enemy of God does not want people focusing on the character of Christ. He doesn't want it. Should skin color matter or should his character matter? What he achieved and who he was? What impact will it have on people? Think this through. What impact will it have on people's hearts and minds if we shift their attention away from the character of Christ, his methods, his self-sacrificial love, to his skin color? Will it bring unity, or will it bring division? Some people could say, well, just imagine that Jesus was a woman, if you're a woman, um, and uh, how he was treated and mistreated and abused. Perhaps that could help you if you imagine that circumstance, but using that as an imaginary identifier is not the same thing as saying, Jesus was a woman. Those are not the same. The truth is, Jesus' humanity, according to Scripture, was descended through David going back through Abraham. We have his entire family tree. He was not from the Caucasus. The Caucasus are where the Caucasians come from. He was not from the Caucasus. He also was not Negro. He was Semitic. Now, some of you value Ellen White. And Ellen White saw Jesus in, in her visions many times, never really stated whether she saw him personally, physically, or just a representation of him. But the representation that she saw in vision, she saw a picture in someone's house once and said, that is the closest representation that she saw of Jesus while she was in vision. I have that picture here, and this is the picture, if you can see it. See if it goes that way better? There's the picture that she said was most representative of Christ that she saw in vision. Do protesters want to shift the narrative away from Christ's character and what he achieved to skin color to promote a narrative? They are trying to push, and the narrative they're trying to push is black people are mistreated and abused by white people. Jesus was crucified by Romans, Italians, Europeans, therefore he was a person of color because that's what the white people do to people of color. It fits the narrative if they can change his identity. So how do we address the call for the destruction of the images and pictures and paintings of Jesus that is supposedly white? I actually have never seen him supposedly white. I've always seen him as Semitic, with a dark beard and dark hair. What we have to recognize is that people who are calling for these changes are not actually Christian there you go. Amen. They're the ones who, in the end of time, Jesus will come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these miracles in your name. We got rid of all the images that misrepresented you and, and did it all in your name. And, and we did all these things in your... Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I, my kingdom is not of this world. I do not practice coercion. My kingdom is the kingdom of truth. No liars are found in my kingdom, according to scripture, and I don't perpetuate lies and falsehood. Your entire operation and system is based on lies, falsehood, and coercion and intimidation using violence to achieve your goals. You are not Christian. You are not my representatives. Don't get sucked in, good Christian folk, because you empathize because you see someone's pain, because your heart aches for them, don't get sucked into joining a movement that is non-Christian, that doesn't represent Christ. We're to see it for what it is and have real confidence in our Savior. We're to love them, see them as Christ saw those who were abusing and torturing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We don't hate them. We see them as our brothers and sisters, our own children who have joined a cult. We long for the truth to penetrate and free them. But we don't join them. We don't stand in solidarity at their demonstrations. It only fuels and perpetuates the lie. We don't collude with lies. One of the most deceitful and destructive elements of this current social justice movement is the false dichotomy they have set up. They give people, this is Satan's strategy, he does it all the time, he'll give you an option between two false choices, We've talked about this with the, with the Eucharist versus the communion. And the Catholic Eucharist where uh, when, you, when you take the Eucharist, Jesus goes to his Father and presents his sacrifice at that time to the Father to pay for your sins. And the Protestant version: oh no, that's all sins were paid for at the time of the cross. And, and he's not paying for them at, at now when you confess your sins. He's just reminding the Father of his merits that he's already paid for them. Two false choices because they both have the same God who have to have Jesus pay him in order not to kill you. Classic, classic strategy. And right now, this system of social justice movement is giving you two false choices. The false dichotomy is to they have identified a legitimate wrong or injustice perpetrated upon an individual or individuals. And then, after they identify wrong, they they stir up your righteous outrage. This is wrong. This needs to be stopped. And it does. But here are the wrong choices. Two false options. One... Use destructive methods of violence, coercion, lies about history. Demand everyone surrender to the new narrative or be punished in various ways. Fired from your job, lose your um, your house, come burn down your, your, your business. Uh, you have to tell the narrative or you will be coercively punished. That's option one. Or option two, if you don't accept it, you're not only punished, you're labeled a racist. So you're either a racist or you agree with them. Those are your two options. And many, many, many white people are terrified of being called a racist. And so they go along with something as completely anti-Christian and anti-God's kingdom of love and truth and participate with these processes that perpetuate falsehoods. I'm seeing and getting emails from Christian websites where these people are writing these uh, articles that are filled with false premises and lies because they're compassionate and they care. The Bible tells us that the end-time deceptions will be so subtle that if possible, the very elect will be deceived. This is one of those subtle deceptions. It's so subtle. It's so appealing. It's so heart-rending. Sunday's lesson. The lesson focuses on Jesus healing the blind man and references Mark 8.22, but I want to focus instead on John 9, the healing of the blind man in John 9. This is out of the NIV. And, when, and he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this, this, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of God who sent him, so forth and so on. And then he told him, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. man went and washed, came home seeing has that ever been kind of confusing, why he did it this way? Uh, it's never been totally clear to me, but but uh, recently I was talking to a Messianic Jewish rabbi, uh, Rabbi um, Eric Walker, who told me that there was a specific reason it was done this way. And that is because the Messiah had to actually achieve several different things in order to be a Messiah, the, the Messiah for the Jewish people. One, he had to display creative power. Two, he had to forgive sin. And so, oh, by the way, he says, and they were listed in the answer to the, to the disciples of John the Baptist. Go back and tell him. And what, they, what he listed were the specific elements that the Messiah would have to fulfill. Um, the, the blind would receive their sight. And I'm going to unpack that one in a minute and show you that this is a, him using creative power. Uh, the lepers are cleansed. That's the forgiving of sins. He has to have the power to forgive sins. He cleans lepers. The deaf here, he has to enlighten. The, the dead are raised, and Lazarus was raised after four days because they believe the soul hovers around for four days. So he waited for four days to show he had the power over death to raise Lazarus. And the gospel is actually preached, the true message. So all those elements had to be achieved. And so in this particular one, he shows God's creative power according to this uh, Jewish messianic rabbi. And here here's... What he says, the, the understand the mud. It says in the beginning, God created. John nine, Jesus encounters a man blind at the pool of Silo- uh, Siloam. Uh, it says that the man was blind from birth. Now it begs the question: How could they determine two thousand years ago with one hundred percent certainty that there was no visual acuity in a, in a newborn? No visual acuity, blind from birth they say that the only way you can be 100% certain was he was born without eyes. And the view is he was born without eyes. His eyes were closed. He had no eyes. And that what you see here happening is that just as... The water, the water, reading out of Genesis chapter 2, the mist arose from the earth and watered the whole surface of the earth. Then, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed his nostrils the breath of life and they became a living being. As God took dirt and made man, Jesus took mud, moistened it, and created eyes. This is their view. So it fulfills one of the criteria for the Messiah. He would have creative power. He would create just like God created in the beginning. I thought that was pretty cool. I'm not going to uh, affirmatively say that's exactly how it happened. I have no problem with it actually happening. That Was there any objection that it, I don't think I can say with 100% certainty that's what happened. But if this idea, is there any objection anyone can think of that it couldn't have happened, this is a problem to say it happened this way in any, anyone's mind? I like the idea a lot. It makes a lot of sense to me for it to be this way. It's kind of cool, isn't it? Then, the lesson is focused on healing in the gospel, and I found this uh, quotation out of the book, Testimonies to the Church, Volume 6, and I want to unpack it with you, and, and let's go through the implications and the meaning. It's quite insightful. See if you agree or disagree. Again and again, I've been instructed that the medical missionary work is to bear the same relation to the work of the third angel's message as the arm and hand bear to the body. What is the message of the three angels? Gospel, God. The gospel, the good news about God. God, because we're going to worship him who created So it's a message that good news is about God's character, who is the creator and his laws are what kind? Design. design laws. It's a call back to creator worship, the good news of who God really is. Right. So this is the three angels' message. Now, the, the health message is to be the right arm to that message. So, what kind of law does medical practice operate upon? The laws of health are design laws. They, they're medical. So you can see how the the medical practice would be right arm. To This message of understanding God is creator it 's design law, how reality works, if you break the laws of health you 're not in legal trouble you don 't have to go before a judge you don 't need to get legal pardon or forgiveness you don 't need to get someone to take your disease. What you need is you need a remedy you need healing, and if you don 't get it there 's a consequence that comes to bear so the the health message is the right arm to the three angels' message, which is a call to call people out of imperial law, Babylon, Rome worship of a dictator god to worship creator, designer, builder of reality. This makes it effective. Now, continuing on with the quote Under the direction of the divine head, they are to work, unite, Uh, unitedly in in preparing the way for the coming of Christ. The right arm of the body of truth is to be constantly active, constantly at work, and God will strengthen it. But it is not to be made the body. That's very straightforward. Not to be made the body? Simple, that our message isn't you will get better physical health on this earth in your mortal bodies, and that's the good news. The good news is you can live an extra seven years if you do this. That's God's good news for you. That's not the good news. The good news is eternal life through Jesus Christ that can be modeled in the health message, but the health, the, the message of the gospel is not simply physiological improvement in a mortal body. That's not the message. So we don't want to get... Diverted onto that. But that doesn't mean that the health message isn't the most impactful to show the reality of the plan of salvation. Now get this one. At the same time the body is not to say to the arm, I have no need of thee. The body has need of the arm in order to do active aggressive work. What if we divorce the gospel message from the medical work? What happens if we do that? Might we risk falling into a penal legal presentation and the work falters, we stagnate, Christianity begins to wither and die? What's happening to Christianity around the world? What's happening in Europe? What's happening in America? Because we're not presenting it as design law, we're presenting it as imperialism, and so we have cut the right arm and the gospel is withering. We we're evangelizing out of here. Yes, yes. The medical missionary work should be a part of the work in, of every church in our land. Now, you're, this is going to blow your mind. Wendell, you should listen to this. Okay? Because Wendell's a doc, he'll get this. Disconnected from the church, it would soon become a strange medley of disorganized atoms it would consume but not produce. Let that percolate a minute. Medical work, disconnected from the gospel, will consume but not produce. Health care, disconnected from the gospel of changed hearts, self-responsibility, self-control, abstentions of life, in other words, a conscientious life. Health care, divorced from the gospel, produces What? It produces self-indulgence. And ever more health care spending as we live undisciplined, self-indulgent lives and go to the doctor to have our medical diseases treated and we consume. And look at America. Have the wealth, Has the wealth of America been consumed by the healthcare care industry treating diseases? But have we actually produced ever-increasing healthy people? No, we have not. This is the reason I think COVID is doing what COVID is doing. If you look at what COVID is doing, it's killing the people who have high inflammation. People who baseline have inflammation in their body. Diabetics, Obese people, sedentary people, people who eat junk food, fast food diets, these are the people that once the COVID hits them, their, their immune response kicks up a cytokine storm, overwhelms their body, and they have bad outcomes. By and large, this is the group. People who are uh, generally healthy, who uh, eat a, a healthy diet, who exercise regularly, who have a low inflammatory status as a baseline when they get it, they roll through it not so bad, and they come out the other side without seriousness. By and large. Why do we have so many obese, inflamed people in this country? Because we've divorced health care from the gospel. You can live any way you want, eat anything you want, do anything you want, go to the doctor and get a pill for it. Yes? The society has built up a type of belief system of, give me a pill so I don't have to change my lifestyle. That's exactly right. Do anything you want, get a pill consume 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 are we in a consumer society produce no over there yes on the cellular level in medicine things that consume but do not produce looks a lot like normal cells initially but turns into cancer that's true or viruses or viruses Instead of acting as God's helping hand to forward his truth, medical practice, divorce from the gospel, would sap the life and force from the church and weaken the message. Conducted independently, it would not only consume talent and means needed in other lines, but in the very work of helping the helpless apart from the ministry of the word, it would place men where they would scoff at, the Bible, at Bible truth. Do we see that happening today? The gospel ministry is needed to give permanence and stability to the medical missionary work. And the ministry needs the medical missionary work to demonstrate the practical working of the gospel. Whoa! You see, just living a healthy lifestyle does not give you eternal life. It's not permanent. Okay? The gospel in a penal legal model without the principles of health, the design law, uh, is not practical. It's impractical. To make it practical, you have to understand the principles that apply in practical living. And so both need to be put together. It's quite profound, quite quite wise. Let's go on to Monday's lesson. Other, other comments or questions? Monday's lesson. The lesson points to the story of the woman at the well and recommends we read read it from John 4. So I'm going to read it to you from The Remedy. This is John 4. It says, while Jesus was resting at the well, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus asked her, "Would you be kind enough to give me a drink?" Jesus was alone because his disciples had gone to town buy food. The Samaritan woman was momentarily stunned by Jesus' request because Jews were notorious for discriminating against Samaritans women in particular and wouldn't even talk to them. Once she recovered from her shock, Jesus said, What's going, uh, she said to Jesus, what's going on that you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Imagine 1930s America, southern state, and Jesus says to a black woman, would you give me a drink from your cup? Do you understand, number one, why are you talking to me and you want water from my cup? What's wrong with you? And this is kind of the setting. Continuing on. Jesus with courtesy and respect said, "If you knew the gift." So, you notice he got her attention. She's like, "What's going on here? This is not normal. Something unusual is happening." Okay, and then Jesus, after she's pe- she's interested, she's like, "Uh oh, what's going on?" Here? Jesus said, "If you knew the gift that God has provided for all humanity, and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would ask me, and I would give you the water of eternal life." Sir, the woman replied, "The well is deep, and you have nothing with which to draw water. So, where do you propose to get this water of eternal life? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it himself? Did?" as did all of his family and flocks and herds? Jesus patiently answered, Everyone who drinks of the water from this well is just a short time will become thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water of life I give them will never thirst again. In fact, the water of life I give will actually become a new fountain inside of them that will overflow to eternal life. Upon hearing this, and what uh, what Jesus said the woman eagerly requested sir please give me this water that that i won't ever get thirsty again and have to keep coming here and 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 get water Jesus told her go and get your husband and come back she replied i don't have a husband Jesus gently said to her you are right When you said you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you now live with is not your husband. So when you said you don't have a husband, you are being quite true. Pause. Did you see how Jesus handled this? Did he say it in a way to embarrass and humiliate her? Or did he, in fact, validate her honesty? You're being honest. Letting her know, though, he already knew all about her. And think of the implication. This disclosure by Jesus is not only telling her, I'm talking to you, a Samaritan woman. I'm talking to you, a Samaritan woman who I know is living with a man who's not her husband. And I still care about you. See, this was not to embarrass her. This was to let her know that despite it all, Because how do you think she feels gone through five husbands and living with one that's not her her husband now? Do you think she has high self-esteem? Do you think she feels good about herself and her community? Do you think she struggles with insecurity and fear? And Jesus lets her know. I know. I know. And I've still got the water of life for you. So let's her know. Shocked. Now you can see, wow. Wow. And somewhat uncomfortable, maybe, still, even though she's uh, surprised, but it's still got to be a little shocking and uncomfortable. Uh, with, with such a personal revelation, the woman said, Sir, to know such things, you must certainly be a prophet. So please help me with the problem. Do you notice when we get too, somebody gets too close to our issues, we'll try to divert away to something else? Let's talk about something else should we get that organ for the church or not is that, is that too big of an expense okay. sir to know such things you must certainly be a prophet so, so please tell me help me with the problem our people have always worshipped God here on this mountain but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem so which is it Whew, no longer focus on me Wendell you got a comment I take this as different um, I and obviously that's very very applicable, uh, okay? But it also could be, this is a woman who all her life has been struggling with religion. She's been told she can't come and ask anyone because she's a woman. And here comes a person having a religious discussion with her, and she has deep questions. Is my religion really, it's not satisfying? Is this really what's happening? Is this why it's not satisfying, because I'm, uh, I'm doing it in the wrong place? Or is this something else? Oh, I like that. I like that as an insight as well. Yeah, that's good. So, continuing on. Jesus declared, Believe me, dear woman, the place where one worships God is not important. It is the condition of the heart of the worshiper that matters. Very soon you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship a confusing tradition of rituals that, that does not enlighten the mind and have no ability to heal the worshiper. We worship the creator God and our minds are enlightened and healed by him because He. all he asks of us is sensible and reasonable. The plan to heal humanity from the infection of selfishness and sin is provided through the Jews. The time is now... Come that all true worshipers will worship the Father with an intelligent and reasonable understanding of who He is, respecting, admiring, and loving the truth about His nature, character, and methods. These understanding worshipers are the kind the Father seeks. God is intelligent and reasonable, and His worshipers must worship Him intelligently and reasonably, appreciating and valuing the truth of God, God's methods and principles. And then she goes on um, to have further discussion here. But do you see where he's going with this? It's not about ritual. It's about heart change. And this is what he's focusing her upon. How did Jesus approach this woman? How did he see her? How do we see people through the eyes of Jesus? Do we see? Let me put it this way. When God looks down upon earth, how many races does he see? One. It's called the human race. He sees the human race. Who's the divider? We are Satan. We? Okay, selfishness. Originally it was Satan. Who's the uniter? What's the Bible say happens as we come to Christ? All come back into... Unity Unity under one head. Okay? The gospel Christian message unites. If you hear all this stuff that sounds so good, that resonates with some part of you, that results in you wanting to fracture, wanting to see yourself different, that person's not me, that's the enemy. That's not the gospel message. We all have the same sin condition. We all need the same solution. You know, they're saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. Without God's grace, we are all that person we hate. Let's keep going with uh, this idea of unity. Here's another quote. Uh, it's, in, it's in the uh, notes. It's out of a letter uh, written in 1897. But here's what it says When Christ is not abiding in the heart by faith, there is discord and strife, and but little effort made to get near to each other, where we can be one in Christ. As we approach the great center, Jesus Christ, will be our unity, which is as a wheel within a wheel. Imagine spokes on a wheel, and he's the center. And as you come in towards the center, no matter where you're coming from, if you're coming into the center, who are you getting closer to? Everybody's getting closer to everybody else. And this is what it's saying. Those who live in Christ realize the, the, the greatest harmony, heart with hearts. Discord and strife are not found in that company who are sanctified through the truth. We need faith and love. Let's seek for it. I found this to be true. Christy and I have traveled all over the world, all over the world, and we meet people for the first time and those who have the love of God in their heart, particularly who appreciate design law, the law of liberty, the law of love, the law of worship, they understand and embrace God's principles in their heart. There's a unity, there's a bond. We are connected. We uh, we feel the non-judgmental closeness regardless of denomination, regardless of diet. But when people cling to the imposed law view, here's the list of rules you must keep. There's always discord, always disagreement over which way you did this ritual, or what day you do that on, or what clothes you, or what food you eat. There's always argument, always division, because it's not about the heart. Even in the same denomination. Even if in the same denomination, you see these arguments and splits. Don't we? Bottom green section... Uh, says, uh, who are the people whom, due to influences of your culture and society, you tend to view disdainfully or with lack of respect? Well, my blog a, a little more than a week ago was entitled Christians Beware the Trap of the Social Justice Movement. Anybody re- read it? Contrasting God's methods of doing social justice. And there is godly social justice. Absolutely. Don't anyone suggest, Jennings teaches, that we shouldn't be socially aware and socially just. We absolutely need to be. But there's a godly way to do it, and there's a worldly way which only perpetuates more division and harm. And I dissect those two methods in my blog. This blog has had a lot of activity on the website with Hundreds and hundreds of responses, and I've had to delete, because I don't leave vulgarity on there if I see it, Um, more than 100, maybe 200 responses I've had to delete. But many, many people have responded from both sides. There have been vilifying statements against Donald Trump by some, and vilifying statements against Joe Biden by others. And I delete all of them that I see, because that's not what this is about. Are there people in our society that you hold disdain for and lack of respect? And if so, what does it say about you? And when I do that to people, and I've done that online with a few that were really, really antagonistic, it's always the same case. Those in darkness don't want to come into the light lest their evil be exposed. They never want to look at themselves and reflect because they practice the principle of projection. And so I'm accused of being insensitive. I'm accused of being a divider. I'm accused of being a racist. That's what they do. They accuse. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Yeah, if you see a lot of accusations constantly spewing out of mouths... Jesus didn't go around accusing people even when they were caught in the act of sin. Get your mind around that. Satan's method is to do evil and blame God for the evil. He accuses God of being the source. Watch for that method in our society and you will get some good discernment into who's, who's motivating what, what activity Oh, I wish we had time to go into some other things because uh, Wednesday's lesson I have a whole section on how to deal with difficult people. Should we talk a little bit about how to deal with difficult people? That's what the lesson's about. How to deal with difficult people? Seek to understand before seeking to be understood. The principle is assess. When you're dealing with difficult people, take a moment, and it could be Seconds. If you're if you're discerning, if you've, you have a quick mind, you can sometimes make this assessment very quickly. But assess whom you're dealing with. Their heart, their attitude, their motive, their beliefs, their biases, their wounds, their hurts, their objections, their agenda, what they're trying to achieve. Assess what you're dealing with. Don't fall for the bait that they throw out when they accuse you of something. Assess what you're dealing with. It requires sometimes getting to know someone because they might be more reserved and not just put it out there. Some people just blab it all out there, and from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and you can get a pretty quick assessment. (laughs) It's true. Assess where they're at at that moment in time. Uh, uh, Even when you love them with all your heart, your, your firstborn child you love with all your heart, but at this moment they're in a temper tantrum, they're screaming, they're raging, their face is red, they're pounding their hands on their... This is not a time for thoughtful conversation you're not going to have an impact with quiet discussion at that moment. You have to let the rage pass. And so sometimes we deal with people who are in the middle of their temper tantrums, and the most loving thing we can do, to the degree we're capable, and we have the proper authority as a parent over a child, is to use loving restraint. To restrain them from injuring themselves and others while sanity returns to them. And then there's opportunity for discussion. But there are people out there today in our society, they have no interest in discussion, no interest in truth, no interest in dialogue. They only have interest in their tantrum. So, but understand what you're doing. In the medical model, this is called diagnosing. You diagnose before you treat. Mm-hmm. So, too, before you begin intervening with some truth you believe some person needs to know, you need to first have some sense of an accurate diagnosis of what the problem is, and then some sense of whether they're a voluntary patient, whether they're actually interested in your intervention in their life. They might not be. So don't be a spiritual malpractice- malpractitioner. Don't practice, you know, um, by by going around with your your sword of truth, doing spiritual surgery on un, unwilling and non-compliant, uh, uh, non compliant, um, non cooperative people. You know, there are people in our midst that take their their Bible, going around and trying to cut sin out of other people's lives that have no interest in it. This is not helpful. Understand who you're dealing with, but love people as people. Seek to show them that you care about them. Oftentimes. As you assess them, there's no intervention you can make other than let them know that you love them as a human being and that you're patient with them and you're understanding with uh, with them. Live a life that reveals a healthier and happier life than they can ever achieve out of harmony with God's design. I can tell you, you don't have to punish a person who smokes two packs a day. It may take a while, but eventually they will have consequences and they won't be happy. People who are living out of harmony with God's design, you don't have to punish. You just simply continue to love, and over the course of time, your life will demonstrate. I've gone to a few class reunions. Some of our class members have, uh, let's just say, let's just say they look a little more rough than other class members. They've been on a harder road of life, sometimes not by their own choice, they might have been injured in a wreck of some kind. Sometimes, though, it's lifestyle choices over years. You can see the outcomes if you have discerning. But love people show that show a, live a life that shows healthier and happier. And then there are some people. This is part of your assessment. There are some people actually incapable. They do not have the capacity to grasp and understand certain realities. There are some people that don't. They just don't have it. You love them, but you don't argue with them. You smile, grant them freedom, and move on, if that's your assessment. When truth is spoken, speak it in love, but leave people free. No retaliation. If if they um, don't agree with you, don't embarrass them, humiliate them, uh, turn your back on them. You continue to be a source of light in their community without condemnation. Like if a person who smokes in your family, you might educate them on the dangers, but you love them even though they continue to smoke and you show a healthier way. But, that's a good example, if the person in your family or friend who does smoke comes to your house, will you be critical and judgmental and condemning if you set a boundary that they can't smoke inside your house or inside your car? And if they then turn it back on you that you're being judgmental and unreasonable and demanding and trying to control them when you tell them they can't they can't smoke in your home, do you accept that or do you still hold the boundary and realize that they're trying to manipulate you? If you love me, you, claim you, you Christians are so judgmental. Say, I just want to come over here and visit you and spend time with you. You can't, even, you can't even visit me for five minutes without criticizing me and telling me that I'm no good and telling me I have to put my cigarette out. You think I make this up? You draw the line where it crosses into your space and your areas of authority. They are free to smoke as much as they want you'll love them just as much but they don't smoke in your house they can smoke in their house and they can smoke in their car that's where you draw the line and you put it right back on them and you go I'm interested to know is why you have such little respect for me that you would want to smoke in my house when you know I don't want you to you put it right back on them their conduct is out of line you don't accept the accusation but in our society today let me tell you this whole movement is designed to give false allegations to get people to accept false guilt for things they have not done and then try to repair a problem they did not cause. It's colluding with a lie. You have to understand and discern the boundary. I'm sorry you feel that way. You're free to blame me as being intolerant. I love you. I'd love for you to visit, but if you're going to demand to smoke, you're going to have to leave my house. See, you're throwing me out. You're throwing me out. (laughs) You're free to view it that way if you like. I'm inviting you to stay. You're refusing to put your cigarette out. Now replace cigarette with anything else. Cursing in front of my children. Wearing clothing that reveals too much in your house in front of your children. on your Sabbath coming over and turning on music that you don't want playing in your house on Sabbath? I mean, replace it with anything else. Are you being judgmental? Are you being wrong? Now, if you went to their house and told them how they needed to put their cigarette out, that's a completely different experience, isn't it? Yeah, so this is all about boundaries and understanding. Love, let me tell you what love does, guys. And love is under assault in America. Love speaks the truth and stands firm on truth. Love never compromises the truth. When you love somebody, you don't go along and tell them you're sorry for an act that you did not commit. When they accuse you of some wrong you didn't do, you don't say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? This happens in codependent relationships all the time where one spouse will accuse the other spouse of something uh, that they didn't do. Why didn't you have dinner ready for me at 5.30 rather than 6? I came home early today. Yeah, but you didn't tell me. You you should have known. I'm sorry. You're right. I should have known. I'm sorry. Don't be mad at me. I'll, I'll, I'll have things prepared early, so just in case next time it'll be ready... Do you see the evil in that? That's not right. The person who's accusing is the one that's in the wrong. We have a lot of this going on in society. My feelings got hurt by what you said. You heard my feelings. But did what was what I said wrong? I see this all the time. And many people, it might be true that what you said exposed uh, some process that was going on that made that person feel bad. They felt bad. That's how they responded. It didn't mean what you said and did was wrong. Don't you remember when Jesus spoke very clearly and his disciples actually say, Don't talk like this. You're offending them. Stop. No. true Love speaks truth and stands for truth. And what's happening, truth and love are under a terrible assault today because of people's feelings. Love people. Love people. Understand people. Understand they're hurting and, and be compassionate to their pain. But don't compromise truth and don't accept allegations that are false. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and your grace and, and that you are the, the God of all truth. We ask now that we need the spirit of truth and love to give us discernment because we're in a wicked world where the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking who may devour, spreading deceit and lies that are so subtle they're often hard to see. We pray that you will give us enlightenment and discernment so that we can see in real time the most gracious Christ-like actions we can take in governance of ourselves. Maybe it's the best thing is to remain silent. Maybe there's a word we need to speak but enable us to do so as Jesus would. We pray in your holy name. Amen.